Hey everybody, it's Mike. Welcome or welcome back to the Revision Church Podcast. While you're here, make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download the Revision app, which is actually the best way to get access to new content and share it with friends. You can get the app by texting Revision App to 77977. Thanks for listening today. My hope is that this message will be helpful for you and would inspire you to take the next step on your faith journey. Amen. That kind of a weird week, uh, a friend and mentor and hero of mine felt like God was calling him into a different season and resigned his post. And I was personally really bummed about that news, not because I didn't think he was being faithful, but because I worried that his next season won't allow him to pour into me as much, which is selfish, but it was a real thought. And then I spent a little bit of time later cleaning out my grandma's house. She passed away this winter, and so the house is being sold. And on my way home, I felt the need to stop by the cemetery briefly and pray and just thank God for some of the incredible people he's put into my life that have made a a difference. People like my grandma, who was another hero of mine. She taught me a whole lot about living and loving well. I've been thinking a whole lot about heroes lately as we're in the middle of this series here at Revision called Ordinary Heroes, where we've been taking a look at people in the Bible who are just a lot like you and me, ordinary folks who at one point decided to step out in big faith and not do the same thing everybody else was doing and bring God what they had. And in doing that, they changed the game for the people around them. So as I was reflecting this week on some of the amazing influential people God has used to shape me and direct me, I found myself asking the question, who are my heroes? Like if I had to make a list, who would be on that list and why are they heroes in my life? And I figured I'd kick things off this morning by asking you the same question. You don't have to answer it out loud, but take a second and think about who the people are in your life that have been heroes to you and what exactly it is that makes them heroic. Like, who is it? Who's on your list? Some of you are on somebody else's list. You are heroes. Maybe you saved someone from drowning or donated a kidney or stood up to a bully at school or some of you are like next level. You try to teach your parents to text with thumbs instead of, not everyone comes back from that. You're doing the Lord's work. Keep going. But like, what is it about heroes that makes them heroic? I'm willing to bet that the heroes in your life have something in common with the heroes in my life, and it isn't that they were born with superpowers or they were simply destined for greatness. My heroes, both the personal ones and the larger-than-life ones I never got the chance to meet, and your heroes have a common denominator. It's the mark of a hero. Heroes save the day through sacrifice. Heroes always give a part of their life away for the sake of your life. They're people who are willing to sacrifice because they catch a vision of what's broken and imagine a future where it is healed. Or they catch a vision of what could be and imagine a future where it has become reality. See, heroes let something die in order for something more beautiful to live later. But heroism always requires sacrifice. And, and we admire that. We admire it when people say no to whatever's right in front of them, whether it's their finances or their stuff or their plans for their life, so they can say yes to some God-given, God-sized, God-shaped vision. Because when they do that, it makes a difference. It changes the future. 
And we get teary-eyed thinking about the people who've done that. We find ourselves inspired by it. We pay to watch movies about this stuff. Top Gun Maverick is about to hit the $1.5 billion mark. Thor Love and Thunder's at like three quarters of a billion. We love sacrifice. It's just amazing. But mostly, and most importantly, we love sacrifice when somebody else is doing it. That's the second half of the sentence. It was a lie at first, but now it's true. It's the best when somebody else denies themselves and somebody else says no to good things so they have room for great things and somebody else lays down their life for the sake of the world. We just really don't want to have to do it ourselves. And we know that's true. Like There's no one on this planet I hate saying no to more than I hate saying no to me. In our most honest and vulnerable moments, we can kind of admit that we want to hang on to our safety and our security and even our routine. It may not be everything we ever wanted, but at least it's familiar to us. And we cling to it, kind of, like, kind of believing that like, whatever's broken in the world must be somebody else's problem because we don't have the stuff that heroes are made of. But that's not true. Our creator created us with creative purpose. Every single human soul contains all the ingredients necessary to write a better story for the world. But there's a catch. And it's kind of step one in the process of taking our ordinary lives and leaving an extraordinary legacy. And the catch is this. We will never know what heroism looks like on this side of all in. Because heroes are made only on the other side. If you got a Bible or a Bible with you this morning, you can crack it open to 1 Kings chapter 19 if you hit. Samuel, keep going. If you hit Chronicles, go back. If you don't have a Bible, no worries. The words are going to be up on the screen. And if you need a Bible or your kids do, they're free at the Next Steps table out in the lobby. You don't have to talk to anyone or sign up for anything. We have reading plans out there. We would love it if you would just take one before you leave today. But in 1 Kings 19, we get introduced to a character named Elisha. Not to be confused with Elijah, who is also in this story. Elijah was a great prophet. He was this incredible, bold man of faith who did amazing things. And Elisha was the guy who followed after him and actually had the guts to ask God for a double portion of the blessing that he had put on Elijah's life. And one of the coolest things about Elisha, one of the things that makes him an ordinary hero is that he was not the son of a prophet or the son of a priest or the son of a king. He wasn't anybody special. He was just like a normal dude living at home Working on a farm. He was bald. God can use bald people too, you guys. And he just like, he was just a human like me and like you. And then God gave him a vision of the future and kind of like completely rerouted his entire life. And he eventually became the person that did the most miracles in the entire Bible other than Jesus. And it's crazy. What I want to look at this morning is this decision that he made, this this seemingly small action Elisha took right at the beginning that set the stage for everything else that followed. 1 Kings 19.19 tells the story. It says, so Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. A killer name, by the way, Shaphat. I don't know why we got a bunch of kids running around named Elijah and Elisha, but no one's named Shaphat. I haven't told Jenny this yet, but if we have another kid or adopt one, Shaphat is on my list, all right? It's good. So Elisha, son of Shaphat, 
He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? I know most of you are probably sitting on the edge of your seats right now going, but some of you might be going a little bit more like this, like, wait, what? (laughs) What? Uh, What? And if that's you, don't feel bad. That's how I felt the first time I read this story too. It's pretty much the weirdest introduction to someone's life story in history. Elisha's out there just having a normal day doing his like backbreaking, monotonous work in the fields, you know, and the view isn't very great. You're just looking at the backside of a couple oxen, which probably means the smell isn't very great either, but it's a good, solid job. And he's out there like working hard, clearly a leader. He's leading a team of 11 other men that are plowing as well. And the story's pretty normal this far, or at this point. And then a crazy old guy shows up in the field, throws a coat at him, and walks away. He didn't even say anything. It was a drive-by coating. Like, imagine tomorrow, you're just chilling at work, doing your stuff, and someone comes in. Like, what do you, how do you even deal with that? <laughs> what's, what's the next step at that point? Elijah looks at him, he's like, hey man, if you want me to come with you, I'm assuming that's what that meant when you did the coat thing. Like, can I just tell my parents where I'm going? And Elijah looks at him, he's like, go, I don't, what did I even do to you? Well, you threw your coat at me. That's, for starters, that's one thing that you did to me. <laughs> you read the story, you're like, what is going on? Well, this is a cultural moment that doesn't translate to our modern day, but it's actually really cool. Check it out. Elisha's cloak was his outer garment, and it was the symbol of his prophetic calling from God. And so, like right before this happened, Elijah was like, he was depressed, and he was frustrated, and he was burnt out, and he felt like, I can't do this anymore. And God picked him up. He lifted up his spirits. He said, hey, you ran a good race, and you fought a good fight, and it's going to be okay And I got a guy I want you to mentor because he's going to take over for you. There's this guy named Elisha, and and you're going to teach him how to do this, and then your time on earth is done. It's going to be okay. And then God sent Elijah to throw his cloak over Elisha as a way of saying, hey, that which covered me will now cover you. That which was my mantle and my calling will now be your mantle and your calling. That which I was under, you will now be under. God is going to do through you the kind of things God has been doing through me. So he throws his coat over Elisha, and it takes a minute for Elisha to figure out what's going on. But he knows who Elijah is. Everybody knows, and as he shakes it off, he says, all right, I'm going to run him down and be like, hey, man. Is it cool if before I follow you, I go say goodbye to my parents? And Elijah looks at him and says, go. And what did I even do to you? And this is what he's communicating there, saying, yeah, it's cool. You don't have to do this. I didn't come up with your name. I didn't decide to invite you into it. God did. And you have the option to answer that call or not. So can you go home? Yeah, you can go home and say goodbye or you can go home and just stay, man. You got a good life going. You got a family who loves you. This isn't my call. It's your call. And this isn't my calling. It's God's 
calling, but you're going to have to make a decision right now about whether you're going to answer it or not. And what blows my mind here is that this is the entire amount of information God has given Elisha in asking him to completely reroute his life, to give up on every picture he ever had of what his future is going to look like and live out a wildly different story. The only piece of information God gives him and inviting him into that is Elijah threw his cloak on you. And the crazy thing is Elisha goes. He doesn't know what it looks like to be God's prophet. He's never been anything but a farmer. He doesn't even know where Elijah is going, but he decides to follow because he understands that you don't have to view God's entire blueprint to believe that God has a blueprint. You don't have to understand everything God is doing before you obey. And I think if we are going to live the lives God called us to, If we're going to do the things he dreamed us up and knit us together and placed us right here, right now to do, we got to learn this from Elisha. You don't have to know before you go. You don't have to know before you go. And it's only fair to be honest with you as we talk about becoming ordinary heroes and stepping toward the things God is inviting us to, you almost always have to do the opposite. You usually have to go before you know because God tends to communicate with us in the exact same way he communicated with Elisha one step at a time. I think part of the reason for that is he knows we are too frail and too fragile and too fearful to actually walk toward what he made us for if he gives us the whole picture. I am. I'm not proud to admit this, but I was thinking a lot about it this week. And the truth is, I don't know if revision would exist if God showed me the whole story first. Like, I wouldn't trade this for the world. I'd do it again in a heartbeat. I wouldn't even have to blink if God said, I want you to plant Revision Church in Des Moines, Iowa. But seven years ago, if I'd seen the last two years coming, if I'd known the pain of carrying people's worst moments with them, if I'd known what it feels like when people you've poured your life into just disappear, like if God had given me 10 steps or or 20 steps worth of vision rather than one step when he said go, I don't know. I don't. And you're going to have to kill me to get me out of here now, just so you know. So you can start planning. That's the exit route for me. Someone's going to have to murder me, but that's fine. Like, I, I, I love it. But seven years ago, I had a really good job offer to stay where I was, and I had a good offer to plan in Minnesota. And they're like, hey, if you plan in Iowa, $35,000 is not actually coming your way, that you thought you had already fundraised. And you got to wait like two years and get 100 people. I didn't know 100 people, so we started with 23 adults and 19 kids. And then our chairs got drop shipped to St. Louis instead of here. And our projector and our speakers got delayed, so we never even set up revision, not one time before our grand opening. It took us six hours to get it set up and three hours to tear it down. And I went and sat in the church truck and cried. And I was like, this is the biggest mistake of my life. What are you doing? God, I'm drowning. I'm going to drown. I'm in so far over my head that it is you or nothing. But then all of you showed up and we get the blessing of doing life and faith together. And I love it. I love you guys more than you could possibly imagine. I pray for you more than you could possibly imagine. And we've seen hundreds of people commit their lives and their eternities to Jesus. And it's incredible. But I look back and realize, like, thank you, God, for giving me only one step because I am too stupid and too cowardly 
to have even taken it if I knew what the next one was and the next one. But my promise to you guys is I will keep taking that step. I'll keep taking that step one step after another step after another step as God gives it because I am convinced at the core of who I am that God is on the move in this city through this community and the best is yet to come. I have no idea what it looks like. But I believe if we just keep taking that step, God will do what he wants to do through us. And I'm excited to see it happen. But one thing I've learned along the way, that I think Elisha would echo, is like eight years ago last week, I was walking around in a circle at 5 a.m. praying. I was like, God, I'll do anything. Just like tell me what to do. I'll, I'll stay at this church that I'm at. I'll, I'll plant a church in Minnesota. I will go home to Des Moines if you call me home. I'm very, very open to going to Honolulu. I think the Hawaiians need the Lord, and they need you. And like, what? what I, just give me clarity. Like, God, I'll do whatever, anytime, anywhere. Just give me clarity. And I felt God speak deeply into my soul. You don't need clarity. You need courage. Take the step that I gave you or don't, but it's not clarity that you lack. It's courage that you lack. And I think so many of us are in this space. We're desperately longing for clarity, but what we need is just the courage to take the one step God has placed right in front of us, and that's the exact spot that Elisha was in, and then he did something that I think is one of the coolest things anybody's ever did. This is what we read in verse 21. So Elisha left Elijah and went back. He took his yoke of oxen, now remember, these are the animals that provided his livelihood. His whole future was tied up in this. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and become his servant. That's an all-in move. Like Elijah's cloak lands deep with destiny on Elisha's shoulders, and he does more than run after him. He makes sure he's got nothing left to run back to. And I think at least partially Elisha did this because he realized the tendency inside his soul to look back. He said, man, following God is plan A, but if I have a plan B, I'm going to be tempted every time it gets hard, every time I don't like being God's prophet, every time I face adversity to turn back and do my plan B. So I can't have a plan B. I got to get rid of that. And I, I got to move forward in a different direction. And so he makes stake. I think one of the more important lessons we can learn from Elijah is that when you don't know what to do, eat steak. Start with steak, okay? It's in the Bible, so next time you're like, I don't know, what's God's next step? Start with a steak and see what he does, because that's what Elisha does right here. But there's this thing about going all in this difficult, because I think it's tempting, at least it is for me, to kind of follow God half-heartedly. To hold back a little just in case he doesn't show up and the way we thought he was going to show up. And isn't that kind of the advice we give other people whenever they're dreaming about doing something big or something bold? Like as a parent, I think if my kid came to me with an Elisha-style plan, like, hey, this is what I'm going to do, I'd be like, oh, I love it that you want to follow God. This is great. You should do that. But also, let's just hold off on the bonfire for now. You know, you just don't need to do it yet. I... Oh, follow God. Yeah, but keep this in your back pocket just in case. Just in case. And that's the way we think, and it's the way we live, and it's the way we speak to the people around us. It's also the way our earthly superheroes do it. They dress up and hide behind costumes and masks. So if it gets too hard, if they don't want to do it anymore, like Superman can just walk around as Clark Kent. Batman can go back to being Bruce Wayne. 
Spider-Man can live out the rest of his days as Peter Parker, but God is looking for a different type of hero. Like burning down his farm equipment had absolutely no practical value in Elisha's life whatsoever, but it had huge symbolic value. He realized if I'm going to be who God made me to be and I'm going to do what he put me here to do, then I got to kill the cows and burn the plows. I got to kill the cows and burn the plows. And I wonder how many of us have missed out on seeing the fullness of what God can do and the fullness of how he wanted to work through us to rewrite the future for the people around us because we were hesitant to kill the cows and burn the plows. Let me be clear. I don't think God is calling most of us to quit our jobs and go be prophets. So please do not walk into your workplace tomorrow and burn it down. I'm going to say that again on video, look straight at the camera for YouTube, just for legal purposes. Do not walk into your office and burn it down tomorrow. I did not give that advice. Don't do that. It's not good. And don't burn relational bridges either. That's not what God's inviting us into, but he is inviting every single person in this room to have this big, risky, kill the cows, burn the plows style faith where we walk toward what he's calling us to. And maybe he is calling you to quit your job and shift into one that aligns more with your calling and your creative purpose. And maybe he's just calling you to stop the passionless approach you have to a job you hate where he wants you to stay. Maybe he's calling you to be bold and stop being ashamed of the gospel and start having spiritual conversations with your coworkers and your neighbors and your classmates and your friends and invite them in and invite them to church. Maybe he's calling you to release the bitterness that you've had in your heart for a long time. Maybe he's calling you to take steps toward holiness because what you're doing isn't working. You need more accountability in your life. I don't know what exactly it is God is calling you to, but I do know that you will never make the difference you were put here to make. You'll never see the beauty of the hero he wants you to become on this side of all in. It just doesn't work like that. Heroes save the day through sacrifice. And so the only way forward is to burn the things that are tying us to a smaller vision of a smaller life. But it's hard to do. It's hard to do. If you're anything like me, you've known fear all your life, and you sometimes feel like you and fear were born on the exact same day. And sometimes I look out at the world around me, and I see the things God wants done. I see the brokenness and the hurt and the pain and the darkness, and I would rather be kept safe from the darkness than be dangerous to the darkness. And so I just hope somebody else will do something so that I don't have to. It's just easy to settle for good and average and secure and ordinary and plain and feel like maybe that's just what God made me for. I don't look in the mirror and see a hero. But when we do that, when God tugs at our heart for something, when he extends us an invitation to shape eternity by abandoning our plans and taking a step toward his big, risky plans instead, and and we decline... Like when we choose to stay within the shelter of what we know and the things we believe we can control, when that happens, the view never changes. Like if Elisha decided, wow, Elijah, thanks for the coat throw, man, but like your life is kind of hard. The queen's trying to behead you, and I like my head on my neck. It feels good on here. And so I'm just going to keep on farming. 
if that's what he decided in this moment, then all the people who came to know God and all the people who experienced God's miraculous power through his ministry would have stayed right where they are and they would have missed out on what God accomplished and how God rewrote the story of a nation through this guy's life. But I think, like, so often, this is the view we choose. We pick it. And then we try to justify, we're like, it's great, I love it, it's the best. Like, we spend a lot of time in our lives chasing cowtails, trying to convince ourselves we are chasing dreams. But what if we were made for more? I've shared this quote before because I love it, and it's the best. In his book, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis writes, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. What if we were less easily pleased? What if we started to allow ourselves to dream God-shaped dreams that are God-sized dreams that require God-sized, risky steps? What if we allowed him to just develop this holy discontent inside our souls and we believe that he wants us to walk toward that holy discontent and we were convinced that if we could get from where we are to the place that he wants us, he would meet us there and would stand in the place God moves and watch the world change. One hard-fought inch at a time. One life at a time as our ordinary lives crash into the ordinary people around us in a way that allows them to experience the extraordinary love of Jesus in the collision. That's what we were made for. That's what God invites us into when he allows us to be a part of what he's doing to set all things right and make all things new. But we're only going to see that if we're willing to come empty-handed to jump in with both feet, to release safety and security and what's right in front of us so that we can grab hold of what he's got out ahead of us in the future. Like we can't take hold of the future God has for us if our fists are clenched tightly around what we've got in the present. It just isn't possible. Something has to die in order for something more beautiful to live later. And so the question for you and me this morning is are we willing to come with open hands? Are you willing to come with open hands, knowing that God will probably show you one step at a time, knowing that it will be risky, it won't be safe, it won't be easy, but knowing he will make an ordinary hero out of you if you'll just take that step. You know, at one point Jesus said, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What if he wasn't kidding? You know, in that same passage, just a few sentences later, Jesus said, whoever puts their hand back on the plow, and he's throwing it back here to Elisha, whoever turns and says, nah, I'm going to hold on to plan B, has no idea what it actually looks like to follow me. And I think if we don't start believing that Jesus meant that when he said it, we will miss out on the heroic difference-making lives God placed us here in this moment to live. I was thinking about this you know, a few days ago, as I stood by my grandma's tomb and prayed and, and thanked God for the amazing people he's put in my life, I realized I do not want to get to the end and feel like I wasted the few breaths that I was given settling for a smaller story than the one God wanted to write. But that's the path of least resistance, and so it's where most people 
are going to end up. But if we will step out in big faith, we'll kill the cows and burn the plows, you guys, God will work in and through us to accomplish things that matter. And at the end, we'll be able to live out the, the words of the great Shawnee chief Tecumseh, who said, when your time comes to die, be not like those whose hearts are filled with the fear of death. So they weep and pray for a few more moments to go back and live their lives over again a different way. No. Sing your death song and die like a hero going home. We don't know what the future holds, but we know who holds the future, and so we can go before we know. We can kill the cows. We can burn the plows. We can step out in big faith toward the things God is calling our hearts to with the knowledge that as we meet him there, we can make the difference we were born to make and die like ordinary heroes going home. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for inviting us to be a part of what you're doing, to set things right and make things new. Thank you for giving us the incredible purpose of showing the people around us your love. Lord, would people crash into you and meet you and experience your beauty and your holiness and your greatness and your love in the collision with our lives. Would you just use us to make a difference? And would you give us the courage to take the step that's right in front of us? It's hard. And every natural inclination inside our souls wants to turn back, wants to hold on to plan B, wants to cling to security. But Lord, would we be a people, would we be a community that's willing to sacrifice for the sake of what could be, that's willing to deny what's right in front of us for the sake of what you want to do in the lives of the people around us? Would you give us the courage to live like that? Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.